I've been wearing contacts as long as I can remember. And some of you, raise your hand. Do you remember when you had to wear contacts? It was the, the, the hard gas permeable type. Anybody ever wore those? Yes. And yes, I feel your pain. For those of you who don't understand, gas hard permeable contacts, it's like basically putting a dirty Frisbee on your eyeball, right? And I remember back then in the 80s or something, I would put this thing on and you would put it on and you couldn't open your eyes because it was all gritty and tears were coming out and it was just painful, but it helped you see. Now, eventually, like everyone else, I got used to it, and apparently uh, those contacts, I don't even know if they make them anymore, but they actually help your vision because it's literally a hard disk that holds the shape of your eyeball in place. And so it, it had some benefits to it. Now, when I was 19 years old, I remember one day I was doing something, and my, my contact popped off my eye, and it instantaneously reattached, but to the bottom portion of my eye, kind of near the duct. And because it popped off, it caught just a little bit of air, and that air acted as a vacuum, and it stuck to the bottom of my eye. And I remember going into the, 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 the mirror and trying to yank on my eye to pull this thing off, and it wouldn't come out until I basically had to stretch my eyeball so the shape was no longer circular, and it popped off, but not without leaving a little indentation on the bottom of my eye. Now, um, all that to say is when they came out with soft contact lenses, it was, can I get a hallelujah from you people? It was like, wow, this is, I used to call them Smurf tortillas because they had a little blue hue to them. They were very big, enormous compared to the, the gas hard permeables, and they were very soft, and you can roll them like a little tortilla in, your, in between your fingers. And I've been wearing those ever since. Now, without my corrective contact lenses, all of life is just an absolute blur. And, and that isn't actually bad necessarily. So for example, in my 20s when I was single, when I would go to like uh, Gold's Gym or, or LA Fitness, I never struggled with the temptation. If you've ever been to those gymnasiums, gyms, you know how women particularly dress. I never struggled with that because all I would simply do, I would pop out my contacts and go work out. And I couldn't tell if you were a man or if you were a woman, if you were waving to me or telling me to get off the machine. So, so, so bad sight has its advantages, yeah? I mean, it, it just does. So now, though, now, some of you have noticed in the last 18 months, maybe last year or so, I've been sporting these on, reading glasses, because my vision is getting progressively worse. So not only do I have contacts and glasses, I now have reading glasses. Now, I've been thinking about getting LASIK because it's still getting progressively worse, but I realize pulling on your eyeball is one thing, right? But taking a laser or a diamond blade to cut it is entirely different, and I'm not willing to do that. So I'm waiting for the day when they create a pill that I can just take, and I take the pill, and, and, and everything's fine. Now, one thing that has helped my sight way more than my reading glasses, more than my glasses, more than even my contacts, has been this book. The thing that has helped me see more clearly than anything in my life has been the Bible. And I'm always amazed how often people didn't even realize how blind they are until they started reading this book. Now, obviously, I can see without my reading glasses. I can see without my, my glasses. I can even see without my contacts. But without the Bible, neither you or I are going to be able to see anything clearly like we should. 
One of my favorite scholars, uh, C.S. Lewis, he says this in his book, Weight of Glory, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I can see everything else. Now, I don't mean to suggest that, that if you're particularly religious or you attend church regularly, you will understand truth automatically or easily. In fact, our passage this morning proves that belief patently false. However, I do believe that seeing Jesus Christ truly for who He is is the first step to seeing anything clearly. So this morning, we are going to look at Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 30, in the two large chunks that I think Mark intends, and that is under the category of blindness, verses 11 through 21, and sight, verses 22 to 30. So let's look at them one at a time. Number one is this blindness. And Mark shows us that there's two kinds of blindness that's being revealed in our passage this morning, and they're very different from one another, although they are very similar in some ways. And the first is the blindness that comes from not believing what is so easy to see. Do you notice, as as Daryl read, the very first verse it says, the Pharisees wanted to see a sign from Jesus. And Mark tells us what their motivation was. It's very clear in the text. They wanted to argue with him. They wanted to test him. Verse 11 reveals their heart. Friends, what this tells us is that for some, God can never seem to do enough. You think about in Jesus' ministry, it isn't enough that Jesus delivered not one, not two, but three individuals from demonic oppression. It isn't enough that Jesus had healed the leper, the paralytic, the man with the withered hand, or the woman with the discharge of blood. It isn't enough that Jesus calms a storm, walks on water, or feeds thousands. It isn't enough that people, everyone, everywhere is astonished and amazed and held in wonder by His teaching. For some people, belief in God is relative to the many things that He does that they want Him to do. And that's the criteria for whether or not God is real. It isn't enough that we live in a world of affluence and prosperity relative to the rest of the world. It isn't enough that we've never known famine, war, and pestilence. It isn't enough that we live longer, have more leisure time, enjoy material goods unheard of in human history. No, we often demand that God needs to do the things that I want Him to do to my liking before I'll decide that He's worthy of my admiration or respect or worship. When you think about that, that is an, it's a real ironic proposition, isn't it? Think about how the thinking of that goes for a moment, that God needs to perform the way we want Him to perform And only when He conforms to what we want Him to be, then we're willing to give Him our admiration, respect, and worship. That's kind of how the thinking goes. Regardless of what God is doing all over the place, that is literally His miracles are seen everywhere, it has to be the miracles to my liking before I'll actually admit His Lordship and worship Him as God. But if God exists to do what you want Him to do, then you're going to quickly realize that by definition, that is not what God is, and you will not worship that. We don't worship things that serve us. We use them 
So it's a very ironic proposition that that's how we determine whether or not we will believe God to be who He says He is or not, depending upon whether or not He does what I want Him to do. Regardless of the miracles that I might see around me, it's only when it's the miracles that I want that determine whether or not He'll actually be God. It's a very ironic way to go about it. There's a prophet from the 1960s who wrote about this in his album in a song called When You Gonna Wake Up. The album was titled Slow Train Coming. The prophet was Bob Dylan. When you gonna wake up, he asks, do you ever wonder just what God requires? You think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires. Well, that's what the Pharisees were doing. That is a certain kind of blindness. Regardless of what Jesus had done, it still was not enough, and they insisted on seeing more. Well, thankfully, we know in verse 12, Jesus wasn't going to take the bait. If all that Jesus has said and done to this point did not help these religious leaders move one step towards faith, one more trick, one more miracle would not satisfy them either. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 16, verses 20 and following, you can write that down, we won't look to it. Jesus shares the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and Jesus says, literally, if someone rises from the grave, they will not believe. You see, the, the rich man asks, hey, Lazarus, Lord, can I go speak to my brothers? And the Lord said, they have Moses, they have the law, they have the prophets, but no, if they see me, and Jesus says, look, if they see someone rise from the grave, they still won't believe. Here's the historic irony. Someone has risen from the grave. And yet people still ask to see a sign. I want more proof. Well, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, theirs was a blindness of choice. A blindness of choice. They did not want to see what was plainly in front of them. And it's not much different today, is it? It's not for lack of evidence that people will not admit that Jesus is Lord. He is the most verifiable historical person that's ever existed by any standard. It's not for lack of evidence that people reject Jesus' claims to being Lord. It's for lack of wanting Him to be Him that is the problem. If Bob Dylan didn't get to the point, maybe Mark Twain does. I love what he says. Some people are troubled by the things in the Bible they can't understand. What troubles me are the things I can understand. And I love that. A lot of people get confused and troubled by what they don't understand about the Bible when the things that are so plain are the things that actually should trouble them. I'm grateful for Twain's honesty there. But it's not just the blindness of these leaders that is so easy to see, but also the blindness of the disciples is so clear as well, as verses 14 to 21 show us. And it would actually be pretty comical if it wasn't such a bold commentary on how much like the disciples we actually are. You see, if the first kind of blindness is refusing to see what is so plainly in front of you, a blindness by choice, the second kind of blindness that Mark is demonstrating here by use of the disciples is a belief in God that doesn't then move to understanding, or belief in God that doesn't move to a perception or living faith or just understanding or connecting the dots. So let's take a look at that briefly as we, as we look at this narrative you see uh, in verses 14 picking up, 
let me read to you that and a little bit from Matthew 16 and kind of stitch this story together. Now, they had forgotten to break bread. Now, keep in mind, friends, I hope you realize in the study of the gospel, there isn't a word there by accident. Everything is deliberately chosen because they're trying to communicate something, yeah? So we're going to compare what Mark says with what Matthew says about this same account. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And the disciples began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now, switch over to, to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew records this same situation going on. And let's take into account his narrative and kind of stitch the story together. Matthew 16, take it at verse 5. We'll just read a couple verses. When the disciples reached the other side of the Sea, the, the sea of Galilee, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and verse 7, and the disciples began discussing it among themselves, saying, we, we brought no bread. Okay, so let's pause here. What's going on? So again, they get into a boat to cross the other side. Jesus is not going to take the bait to give them more signs and miracles. They're not going to believe because theirs was a blindness by choice. And then both Mark and Matthew talk about this reality of bread. Why is that important? Well, what have we been studying for the last couple of weeks? Two major miracles all revolving around bread, the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000. And the point of that Jesus was getting at finds its way here into the narrative. And so Mark makes it a point of saying they brought no bread. And then Matthew says they had no bread, but Mark says they had one loaf in the boat. And so what Mark is probably getting at, if you're seeing that distinction there, is Mark was probably mentioning there was some old crusty old bread in the boat that they weren't going to eat, but they brought none of their own. Now you can imagine that they're sailing on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus uh, discouraged that the Pharisees have chosen this blindness. And now imagine with me, they're out on the sea sailing to the other side, and you know what happens when they get in the boat. So the disciples don't know what's going to happen next. But Jesus maybe looks around, and he just looks to his men and says, guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, Jesus had just tried to teach them about bread and what that all means. We'll get to that in a little bit. But what do then the disciples do? We didn't bring any bread. Did you bring any bread? Were we supposed to be bringing bread? Were we supposed to take the Pharisees' bread? Why is he talking about bread? And you see Jesus' exasperation because in verse 17 of Mark chapter 8, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Mark 16 says the same thing. So let's stitch the story together. They're on the boat, and Jesus says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. We didn't, we didn't bring any bread. Did you bring bread? I didn't bring bread. Why is it, were we supposed to take some bread? Why are you guys talking about bread? Do you not perceive, listen to what Jesus says in verse 18, having eyes, he says, why do you talk about bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Jesus is warning them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, let's, let's talk about that just in case I, I realize I'm jumping ahead. Leaven is an ingredient that usually rises bread. One of its properties is this amazing ability to basically permeate the whole uh, 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 dough, the whole batch. 
And consistently in the Bible, leaven was used as a negative reality that this is something that will spread through in the New Testament. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And the opposite, so what is this leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians? Because we learned earlier that the Pharisees and the Herodians had nothing in common politically or socially. It's really chapter 3, verse 6. The one thing that unifies them is what? Their opposition to Jesus. Their hard-heartedness, their blindedness. And Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. But they are so clueless. They don't even realize what Jesus had been teaching them the last couple of chapters. It has never been about physical bread. We see that very clearly in verse 18 to 20. What Jesus had just done when he asked them, do you not remember the miracles? He asked them that. It's not been about physical bread, you guys. You disciples of mine, I am the bread. I am the life. I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. I'm the one that satisfies. I'm the one that provides with abundance. Have you eyes and do not see? Do you have ears and you are not hearing? This is a second kind of blindness, and this is the one we need to be more aware of than the blindness by choice. I think by the fact that you're here, you're not blind by choice. Well, maybe this blindness we are a bit more guilty of. The leaven they must be on guard against is the fact that their lack of understanding is equally dangerous to what Jesus' purposes are as much as the opposition of the religious leaders. Notice in verse 17, he said, when he's, when he's talking about them, don't you perceive, don't you understand, are your hearts hardened too? And we know there's a connection because in, in Mark 6.52, Mark literally says, we didn't understand above the, about the loaves because our hearts were hardened. You see, Jesus is not rebuking them for not believing but for not seeing and understanding. Guys, this is, this is powerful. Jesus is not rebuking them for their lack of belief. He's not accusing them of unbelief like the Pharisees. Jesus is rebuking them for not seeing or understanding what Jesus has been teaching them. So, so here's, a, here's a pull quote, something very important. Growing in Christ is not a matter of getting more information into your heads. This is not to speak out of the other side of our mouths because we believe that you have to know things. This is why we have our Disciple Makers course. We have to know things. But do not confuse maturity with knowing information. Christian growth is not about knowledge, but seeing, of perceiving, of understanding. It's not about just assimilating, getting more content into your head as if the sheer volume of knowledge will bring sanctification into your life. If you think back in your own life, some of the most godly, caring, Christ-like people probably had the least formal education, didn't have the privilege of seminary or Bible college training. They just read the Word. 
we in America, it's almost an embarrassment of riches how much access we have. And so we made the mistaken notion to think our problem is information, so we just need more. This is a perfect scenario that that's not it. Christian growth doesn't come from getting more information. It comes from perceiving and understanding the information that we have and connecting the dots. The disciples are totally unaware that they are unaware. They're just, I don't, we don't have bread. Why is he talking about bread? Did you bring bread? Should we have gotten some bread? They're totally unaware that they're absolutely unaware. They're discussing the details about the bread, not really, not realizing their failure to comprehend the bread that was with them in the boat, which is, by the way, why some people think Mark's comment, there was only one bread or one loaf with them. It's the same word for bread, arton. Mark was kind of saying there was actually one bread in the boat, and we didn't see it the whole time. It was Jesus. See, so that, that, they, they believe that's why Mark put that comment in there, but Matthew didn't. And their lack of understanding their lack of ability to connect the dots. They had knowledge, but not perception. Jesus says, you're getting a hardened heart. You're thinking it's about knowing more, and you don't realize it's about seeing more clearly. They need to see what's in front of them. They need to see that they don't see. That's kind of the takeaway. They need to see that they don't see. Friends, how about you? Do, Do you think you see everything clearly? Do you you think you see Jesus clearly? Do you think you see reality clearly? Are there blind spots in your life that you might be unaware of? Are you willing to admit that there might be blind spots in your life? I want to show you this great slide that, that just makes the point. It's an advertisement to get men to take certain medical checkups that we don't like to take, I guess, because, well, we're just kind of stubborn. I, I think it says the whole thing, right? I, yeah, I love it. Friends, l- let me ask you, how are you dealing with the fundamental reality that you simply do not see like you think you do? Now, that was not just a slam on guys. Women, you're there too. But apparently you do your checkups, right? How do you deal with the fundamental reality that you simply do not see like you think you see? How will you fulfill that ancient Greek axiom, know thyself? Better yet, how will you reconcile that more, even more ancient Hebrew axiom that there is a way that seems right to a man or woman, but its end leads to death, Proverbs 14, 12. How will you know that the thing that you think is bringing you life is not bringing you closer to death? Do you have something more than just a personal subjective feeling that guides you. When my kids were growing up, actually I still say this now, if I were to ask them, they would know the answer. What is the biggest obstacle to learning? What is the biggest obstacle to learning? Thinking you already know. Friends, do you have an objective way in your life that can tell you that you actually don't know? Or is it all just how you feel about yourself, your perception? If you're a Christian, the Bible gives you a two-pronged strategy to overcome this. Number one, it's the Word of God. Turn with me. Keep your finger in Mark chapter 8. Turn with me to Psalm 19 and verse 12. 
If you're using one of our pew Bibles, that's page 426. Psalm 19, verse 12, page 426 in our pew Bible. These two verses come on the heels of uh, four verses, five verses, that are probably the most potent, condensed uh, section on the sufficiency and the power of Scripture in your life. It talks about the law, the Word of God is perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true, better than gold. And listen to what he says in verse 12 and 13, because of the Word in their life, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. So, okay, now flip over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. So, the psalmist just got through extolling the power of God's Word, and he ends his prayer saying, so keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. What's that? Sins I don't even, I'm, I'm not even aware of. Let not hidden faults rule over me. What's that? I don't even know the 10,000 ways. I go lights out to the things of God and the people around me because of that. Your word has to reveal myself, reveal me to myself, expose me, and transform me so that I can run to Christ. Look at what Hebrews uh, chapter 4 teaches on that. Maybe some of you are there already. Some of you know what, path, what verse I'm going to read, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. Whoops, no, for, verse 12, that's it. Verse 12, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the Bible saying of itself, it will reveal you, it will expose you. The Word of God will know you better than you know yourself. Friends, this is much better than a personal subjective feeling about what you think. Let God's Word, the perfect Word, reveal yourself to yourself. That's the first strategy, the Word of God, the Bible. The second strategy that the Bible offers or the Scripture offers to us is the local church. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. It's, it's one page to the left of the text you were looking at just now in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says this, Take care, brothers. So who's the writer writing to? Christians, Adelphoi, Christians, brothers and sisters, just in case there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What's the antidote to this? Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, the honest love of brothers and sisters in Christ being willing to say hard things for your good. But that requires humility on your part, doesn't it, to, to hear things that are hard. And that humility begins by first recognizing that you don't see like you think you do. And when you come to that point, you are grateful for correction. You want people to speak the truth of God's Word in your life because you're not convinced 
of your own superiority. You're convinced that the word is right, and I don't see myself the way I think I do. And so you're always reading the word, not applying it to others, but you're going, that's me, that's me. I need sight. I need to see because I don't. And that is exactly, by the way, that's exactly why Mark has placed this miracle of the blind man being healing next. So that's what we turn to now. We've looked at blindness, some of its causes and its roots. Now we look at sight back in Mark chapter 8. Let me just read it to you because it's amazing, these three or four verses. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Friends, the miracle of the blind man receiving his sight that we just read serves as an object lesson as well as a commentary on all such spiritual blindness. That is why it's here. The blind man is just like the disciples that Jesus said in verse 18, you have eyes, but you do not see. The role that this miracle plays in Mark's narrative is to be the the link that bridges the blindness of the disciples in 14 to 21 with the amazing insight that Peter exclaims in verses 27 to 30. You see, verse 29, that is the climax of this first part of Mark's gospel when Peter sees and he says, you are the Christ. And in Matthew's parallel account, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But like the blind man, Peter's only part right. Like the blind man who then kind of sees, but he sees the men walking around like trees, Peter's confession is only partly right. In other words, Peter does exclaim correctly that you are the Christ, but in truth, Peter's sight is limited. It's only getting a little bit better because he doesn't know what Christ means yet. Biblical scholar David Garland says in his commentary on Mark, the disciples' major problem is not simply their blindness, but the failure to recognize that they are blind. Friends, you know you are reading Mark's gospel correctly when you see your own blindness and the blindness of these disciples. Listen again to what Garland has to say. He's so insightful. The disciples saw dimly in a glass coated with the dust of traditional ways of viewing things, and this one's really important, and warped by the curvature of their own dreams and ambitions. The glass we look at through today is no different. We are no less in need of healing before we can see what God is doing, and it may not take on the first try. You see, Peter and the disciples were right to confess that Jesus was the Christ. They got that part right. What they didn't quite understand is what Jesus being the Christ means for their lives. And I wonder, friends, if you have mistaken admitting him to be the Messiah to understanding and perceiving what that then means for your life. Because as we see here in Peter, the two are not exactly identical which is, by the way, if you look at verse 30, and even what Jesus said to the blind man, verse 30, 
and Jesus charged him strictly to tell no one about him, just like he tells the blind man, don't go back in the village. So often Jesus is telling people not to say a word. Now, why is Jesus doing that? It's because if people have their preconceived notions about who the Christ is and they're proclaiming they just ran into the Christ, they will misunderstand him entirely. It is only, not coincidentally, it is only upon the cross that Mark exclaims someone got it right. The Roman centurion in Mark 15, 39, when he saw Jesus die and said, truly, this was the Son of God. At the foot of the cross, at the height of the sacrifice, what Christ was about became clear. Because up to this point, Christ was the Jewish ticket out of oppression. Christ was their one-way ticket to Easy Street. Christ was going to deliver them. Christ was going to give them the goodies that they had been waiting for. And if people thought that's who he is, it would be a completely different story. So Jesus says, don't say anything. You will only know the Christ until you actually see I'm here to suffer, to be the servant, and to give my life away. Only then will you have the categories to even understand what it is to be my disciple. Friends, Mark 8 reminds us, ultimately, our ability to see comes from God. Physical sight is a given, but spiritual sight clearly is not. Being able to see Jesus as the Christ is the first part, but do we see Christ through the lens of Scripture, or do we see Him through the lens, as Garland said, the curvature of our own dreams and ambitions? According to Mark 8, If we see Jesus the way we want him to be, it's as great a mistake as being in opposition to Jesus because in both cases, we're not recognizing who he truly is. And that was what the Pharisees were guilty of, and that's what the crowds and his own disciples were guilty of. And Jesus puts them together. He says, failure to understand what I am and what I'm about is as bad as being in opposition against me. Don't be hardened in your hearts. Jesus is the Savior, the suffering servant, the one who places demands upon you and the one who commands you, not the other way around. But thankfully, as Mark reminds us, if we're willing and we have the humility, we'll let his constant touch give us sight. Notice last week, Mark tried to remind us, it is only the touch of God that helps our deaf ears actually hear his word. And he follows it up. It is only the touch of God that helps our blind eyes see who he actually is. He's trying to teach us something. But do you first admit you don't hear and you don't see? But if we allow him, he will give us this clarity of vision. But friends, I conclude with this. The choice remains with us. We can either oppose him, we can confuse him, or we can confess him. We can oppose him like the Pharisees because Jesus stood in the way of what they actually wanted, right? We can confuse him like the crowds and often his disciples, who believe that Jesus was there to give them what they actually wanted, or we can confess him, like the ones who were given sight, and see him for what he truly is, the Messiah who claims our worship. Next week, we're going to reflect on a church uh, on this first half of Mark's gospel as we gather on our reflection service, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how God has opened uh, blind eyes and deaf ears. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Mark's gospel and how with every turn of the page, we can be tempted to say how dense these disciples were, how they don't get it. 
but then, man, we are just forced to reconcile, that is me. Holy Spirit, would you open deaf ears and blind eyes? Would you give us the humility to recognize we don't see, and we don't even see that we don't see? That in itself is going to be a miraculous work, and we pray that you would do that that we might see clearly who Christ is, proclaim Him courageously, and live for Him consistently. We thank You that You can do that work. We see it here in the text. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.